Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, March 3rd. We begin with our continuing coverage on the war in Ukraine. We speak with a professor of military capabilities and strategy to examine the current campaign of the Russian attack and what we might see next in the operation. Then we look at the plight of the over 1 million Ukrainian refugees who have fled the country over the past several days. We get some insight from the director of the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies at the University of Ottawa on what's being done to help and how Canada can do more to welcome refugees from the Ukraine. Next, what is needed when it comes to maintaining your car and what's optional when it comes to regular servicing? We speak with Matt Carpenter, automotive technical instructor at SAIT, with some tips on how to not be upsold the next time your car is in the shop. And finally, it's one of the main staples of comfort food, soup. We catch up with Sharon Hapton, founder of Calgary success story Soup Sisters, and hear what they have planned to recognize National Soup It Forward Day. Now, has Russia and President Vladimir Putin miscalculated their success in the war in Ukraine? With insight into the thinking behind this invasion and the Russian tactics, we're joined this morning by Frank Ledwidge, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. Good morning to you, Frank. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue. Pleasure. Appreciate it. In your article for the conversation, you say, Frank, that military analysts are baffled by the planning failures of the special operations so far. Can you talk about what really has gone wrong? I think it's kind of, you know, a little bit obvious, but there's probably more to it than just sort of what meets the eye. What's what's gone wrong in what the military has been doing, the Russian military? Okay, so the first thing is that everybody's surprised by the lack of a combined element to this. So, in other words, the the missing air force. Now, obviously, there have been air activities. We've seen jets shot down on both sides. We've seen a few helicopters. We've seen some failed, what are called air mobile assaults, which is where you get paratroopers coming in by helicopter to land. Those have been defeated. What we haven't seen, apparently yet, is the Russian forces taking and or gripping hard what's called control of the air. Now, that's the first thing. If the British, Canadian, U.S. forces were going to cross the border into, into an enemy state, the first thing we would do is take control of the air, which is to say, before a soldier set, set across the border, we'd make sure there weren't going to be attack from the air. And then we would use that control to well, basically to bomb, bomb the enemy freely. Now, the Russians haven't done that. And as a result, they found themselves in difficulty. Second thing, logistics. They have clearly failed properly to prepare the logistics, their ammunition, and field supplies. So it's interesting to me, you know, to a certain extent, Frank, what you're saying rings true from a lot of the analysis I've heard and seen over the past handful of days, which was, you know, one path could have been shock and awe, and the other could have been the path that yeah. they've taken. So where, where do we, uh, you know, split the difference now? What do you think we're going to see strategically from the Russians uh, moving ahead? Right, so... What we tend to be seeing on the media is the fighting around uh, Kiev and, and Kharkiv in the east. But what we're, we're not seeing so much of are the more successful operations the Russians are conducting in the south. And, and they're, they're rolling through their objectives there slowly and certainly behind schedule, but they're, they're doing that. What we can expect, though, in the center of gravity, which I would suggest is Kiev and, and the leadership of Ukraine, so that's the main target, is once they've managed to sort out the logistics and perhaps do a little bit more in, in taking down 
Ukrainian air defense system, we're going to see Kiev gradually getting surrounded and strangled. And then we are going to see, I suppose you could call it shock and awe, but I don't think uh, any Kievans are going to be shocked by it or awed. They're just going to be uh, uh, injured and killed and have to watch on. What we're going to see is the Russian army default to its natural uh, response in situations like this. We've seen it in Grozny in 94, 99. We've seen it in Aleppo in 2016, which is indiscriminate shelling to uh, to break the will of the population to resist. And we may see that for some weeks. Frank, what is Putin's goal and end game here? Is it more than just meets the eye? He's told us what his uh, strategic objectives are. Uh, I'd suggest they're threefold. He said that he's going to denazify, which in his rather sick, entirely inaccurate, uh, completely, uh, let's let's just say it's deliberately mendacious, denazify, which basically means we can translate that into depose the government. He has also said he's going to demilitarize the regime, which means break the Ukrainian armed forces and resistance. And he's also talked about I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit unclear in the English translation, but blurring the borders between Ukraine and, 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 and Russia, which is essentially to return Ukraine to what some theorists would call sphere of influence, but you and I might call control. Those are his objectives. And I think they're maximalist, which means that I don't think they're going to stop at Kiev or Kharkiv or even the east of Ukraine. I think their objective is to take the country and they're going to have real problems doing that because they've only deployed the first echelon and they've almost no reserves and their logistics are very poor. Ooh, yeah, it's interesting to hear that because, you know, what we're seeing is is also the, the fight that the Russians were perhaps not expecting from the Ukraine, uh, not uh, just the Ukrainian military, but citizens who are have been instructed yes. to, to, you know, make these Molotov cocktails. So even if, if we were to look weeks from now and, uh, you know, see Russians, you know, having control over this country, the resistance... This is not something that we're going to see for months. This could go on for years, couldn't it, Frank? Yes, it could. The big, uh, the big variable there is the leadership in Russia. If the leadership in Russia remains as it is, that is the case. If it doesn't, then maybe we won't be getting any more, any more, uh, any less nationalistic people in charge. I mean, the likely successes, and there are no successes that we can identify. The likely successes are going to have a pretty similar approach but they may be more rational and they may calculate this is too much and try and come to a deal. But look, that's all in the future and tea leaves. For now, if Putin remains in power, yes, this war will go on for a long time. Do you see, Frank, any countries stepping in and actually putting boots on the ground to fight to ensure that Russia is not able to take over Ukraine? Uh, At present, the way things are going, no. However, I think it's a reasonable course of action for Western forces to consider the possibilities that, A, Russia may decide to uh, pop over the border from Ukraine into Moldova. And that's a difficult consideration, but it's a bit complex. Or B, perhaps one or two years down the line, they may decide to have a go at destabilizing one one or all of the Baltic states. Particularly, I think, Latvia and Estonia there are vulnerable. In that case, yes, we're going to have, by law, actually, we're going to have a a, a fight. For now, I don't see NATO intervening. I think the the, the wind is blowing against a no-fly zone or aerial intervention. However, the the issue there may be that if Kiev is savagely and brutally bombed, even more than we think it will be, and we see reports of 
large numbers of, of deaths and injuries on our phones and on our televisions and may well be, I think it's possible, don't think it's likely, uh, very, very strong pressure for some form of intervention and that would be extremely risky. But I don't think it's going to happen, but the pressure will, will certainly build. Absolutely. Uh, we appreciate your insight, Frank, and we might be uh, you know, talking with you again uh, to get some more of that insight over the next few weeks. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. With pleasure. Thank you, Andy. That is Frank Ludwidge, Senior Lecturer in Military Capabilities and Strategy, University of Portsmouth. The number of Ukrainians fleeing the country grows by the hour, with details on efforts being made to help Ukrainian refugees and insight into what Canada's role will be in this process. We are joined by Jamie Liu, law professor and director of the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies, the University of Ottawa. Good morning to you, Jamie. Good morning. Well, and I know that, you know, again, this does unfold hour by hour, so a lot of clarity. We're still looking for it. But what happens to these displaced people after they make their way out of the Ukraine? Well, uh, people who are leaving Ukraine have a very long journey ahead of them. While we're focused on the actual act of crossing the border, many people need to find immediate shelter. People with children need to access things like diapers and formula and baby food. Um, So all of these logistical things are challenging. And once people find shelter, it's a matter of determining where they can um, stay for a semi-permanent Uh, period of time. And given that this recent uh, escalation of the war in Ukraine has only been uh, occurring for a week, uh, it's hard to say how protracted or how long this invasion will occur. And so people have to make difficult choices. Do they wait it out? Do they decide to go somewhere more permanently? Um, It's it's going to be a long road and, and people will have to make difficult decisions. So, Professor, what is the international community doing then to step up and help resettle Ukrainian refugees? I mean, what happens? They cross the border into another country, and then uh, how, how does Canada get get folks coming here? How does it work? Yeah, yeah I actually understand uh, from Twitter that uh, Minister Sean Fraser is currently making an announcement on, on this, so it could be changing as we speak. But my expectation is that Canada will provide a specific program for refugee resettlement for Ukrainians, I would expect no less, given uh, the nature of the conflict and uh, the invasion and and the the fact that there is an immediate need for a resettlement. Um, We will see probably similar things that occurred during the Syrian refugee uh, context, where we saw people being sponsored by groups of Canadian citizens, um, and also government sponsorship happening. So, you know, two different types of of uh, streams of resettlement could be uh, coming in the future. It will mean um, that people who are crossing the border today may not actually get into Canada for a few weeks or months. Even there's quite a bit of paperwork that happens, and I would hope that the Canadian government learned from its experience during the Syrian refugee situation that we try as much as possible to reduce the paperwork and reduce the processing so that people are able to come to Canada sooner rather than later. But this is obviously in every situation, uh, Jamie, I'm assuming is different. And this you know, could be maybe the largest we've seen it in recent times. Can we compare? You know, we're already hearing that a million or more than a million Ukrainians have already fled the country, and that's, you know, not over yet. Could this be the biggest we've seen in in our lifetimes? Well, to be fair, I think, unfortunately, this is more common than 
we than many people might know. I mean, we saw a huge swath of people leaving Afghanistan of months ago, and, and Canada was certainly alert and alive to that situation. I would hope that Canada continues to pay attention to those in need in Afghanistan as well. The Syrian refugee crisis is very similar as well, and that also involved a Russian incursion. So, you know, I think that this is comparable to other um, refugee movements and people on the move in recent years. Um, and it is an alarming situation given how quickly people are moving. It, this is, you know, a week's worth of movement is quite substantial. And it means that the situation on the ground in Ukraine is quite dire, quite alarming. And, and it means that we need to address the fact that some of these people need to be um, brought to a place where they can feel safe and, and have access to basic things like healthcare and some normalcy for the children that are fleeing. Yeah, and Professor, I was going to ask you about that because we're hearing, you know, a lot of times it's it's the women and the children that are, are fleeing. The men are staying back to fight in a lot of cases. Does that change how we deal with the refugees or, or you know, what we're able to do with them and for them? So Canada has uh, the experience and capacity to deal with all kinds of situations when it comes to the makeup of refugee families that come to Canada. If, if the minister is announcing a resettlement package, we have the know-how, we have settled people, we have um, set up uh, processes by which children can be signed up for school to, to give them some normalcy as soon as possible. Um, people in Canada have... The, the one thing that's different in the sense that Canada already went through a resettlement recently with the Syrian situation. And so there's a lot of Canadians who've gone through this already and have and know-how and expertise in how to support people logistically, the kinds of clothing they need, the kinds of housing they need, the ability for people to organize things like getting strollers and cribs. So I just think that we're much better positioned now for this group of refugees than we have been in many years. And I would hope that Canada capitalizes upon that already built upon knowledge. Jamie, I know that you are a professor, a law professor and director of the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies. But I'm wondering, you know, do you know, besides the government, the government doing its thing, is there any resource that the average Canadian can, you know, pick up the phone or get online to try to make a difference and try to contribute to, to helping these refugees in need? Yeah, there are several organizations right now um, that are um, receiving funds that will, uh, you know, provide humanitarian aid to Ukraine. So the Canadian Red Cross, uh, I believe, is uh, the Canadian government has already matched a million dollars with the Canadian Red Cross, given the generosity already. But I think there is a continual need for that. Um, and the Ukrainian Canadian Congress has a foundation that is directly linked to organizations in Ukraine. Those are the two organizations that I would recommend people who, for nothing else. Um, feel that the simplest way for them to support is by donating money. And there is a huge need. We're seeing, you know, um, necessities fly off the shelves and people are in huge lineups for things like diapers and formula and, and food. So I think if, if people feel the immediate need to support, this is a time now. I think in the months and weeks to come, there will be more need on the ground in Canada, hopefully. Um, and that's where hopefully Canadians will also step up and volunteer to join refugee resettlement groups, hopefully, or, um, uh, you know, consider um, gathering donations for for the groups of people that are starting out new lives in a foreign country. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate your, your perspective, Jamie. Thanks. 
Thank you for talking about this. Thanks, Jamie Liu, law professor and director of the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies at the University of Ottawa. Yesterday, we talked about the confusion people have over the most important things we need to do to keep our vehicles in tip-top condition. Well, when we did talk about it, he offered up some expertise. So joining us is listener and automotive technical instructor at SAIT, Matt Carpenter. Good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Andy. How are you doing? Hello, Zoo. Hey, Matt. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thanks for reaching out. So let's uh, first off, talk about the oil change. Do we need to change our filter every time we get an oil change? Absolutely change your filter every time you get an oil change. The, uh, the, the job of the filter is to catch all the, the particulates and all the dirt and dust and, and stuff that's floating around inside of your engine. And uh, it gets carried by the oil into the filter. So if you just change your oil and you're not changing your filter you might as well just leave dirty oil in there. You really haven't done any service to your vehicle at all. So, uh, yeah, absolutely, when you change the oil, by all means, change the filter as well. All right, fine, Matt. Second best every other time? Would that be okay? Or do you really highly think that it should be done every time? You know, if um, if if you're waist deep in water, you might as well swim. You know, you've already bought yeah. a lot of oil. Fair. So, so why not throw a $10 filter on there as well? It's... Uh, it's kind of one of those things you've, you've already spent the money and you put the effort in. Just do the job correctly. Okay, how about the air filter in the cabin? That seems to be a new thing that we get hit with. Do we really need to change the, the cabin air filter? Well, it's a, it's a HEPA filter, so it catches lots of small particulates. And, uh, and really, it does get a lot of the, the dust and dirt out of your vehicles. But that's, that's my... Uh, instructor cap on talking you know <laughs> talking to the students and what's the right thing to do for my own personal vehicles I, I um i'm not really wound up if i have dust or dirt in my vehicle i drive with the window open quite often and personally i generally take those cabin air filters and uh, i remove it from my vehicle and i just don't put another one in so there's some uh, some good advice and some bad advice there but uh, the reality behind it if you have a dirty filter you're going to have bad airflow in there, so you're not going to get your heat. Your window's not going to defrost mm. or anything. So okay. either have a clean cabin air filter or none at all, but don't just leave a dirty one in there permanently. It's like a dirty furnace filter in your house. Okay. You, you know, you're, you're better off just having the airflow in there. Matt, we've got less than a minute, uh, but I'm wondering, any other must-dos that we should be looking at every six months or a year, besides following our annual maintenance guide, uh, any uh, other things yeah. that we should do? Yeah, following the maintenance guide is, is vital, and and I would say don't follow the maintenance that is uh, posted on a lot of buildings and and businesses. Go right to your owner's manual and look it up for your vehicle, and then I would also say take the time to walk around your vehicle every now and then and have a look at things objectively, and um, and every now and then turn your radio off, turn the fan off while you're driving, and just listen to your vehicle. Be aware of what's going on in your vehicle. That would be my best advice. And then turn the radio back on, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've got you guys cranked two <laughs> hours every day. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, thank you. You, you answered a lot of questions because it was about, you know, yesterday the discussion. Did, are they just upselling us or do we really need to do this stuff? So we appreciate <laughs> your expertise. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Anytime. Have a good one. You too. Matt Carpenter, a listener to 770 CHQR and an automotive technical instructor at SAIT.
Today, we celebrate National Soup It Forward Day, delivering love and kindness by the bowlful. Joining us with details is the founder of Soup Sisters, Sharon Hapton. Hi, Sharon. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Andy and I know a lot about National Soup It Forward Day and about Soup Sisters. We've been chatting with you for years, but there may be some folks who don't know about your organization. So tell them. Okay. Okay, well, Soup Sisters is a nonprofit organization that was established here in Calgary on March 3rd, actually, 2009. And since that time, we have delivered soup to over 3 million people in the country. Fresh, hot, delicious soup, uh, typically made at community events, which changed, of course, in March 2020. But, you know, the soup must go on, and uh, it has continued to. We still deliver 5,000 pounds of soup a month to uh, Canadians in need. Wow. Well, you know what? The soup must go on. I love <laughs> that. That sounds fantastic. Um, and uh, going on, it's uh, the significance of March 3rd, you mentioned. In a couple of hours' time, you're going to be kicking off a, a very interesting event. Tell us about this. Oh, I'm so excited. We have partnered with YYC Food Trucks, and they are going to uh, serve with us 750 kids a hot lunch, a uh, chicken noodle and an option for corn chowder because a lot of kids are gluten-free or halal. So we're bringing the two flavors uh, en masse <laughs> to the school. And uh, we're going to serve them a hot lunch and just see the smile on their face. I cannot wait. Why soup, Sharon? Why soup and why National Soup at Forward Day? Well, soup, you know, I, honestly, Sue, I believe it's the universal comfort food. And I believe yeah. that a hundred percent entirely. I've seen it over and over. Um, so that's why the soup, uh, and, and national soup at forward day is to encourage everybody to get in on this very simple, tangible way of giving, you know, soup sisters, we give, you know, all year round, 365 days a year, we're busy, you know, uh, finding ways to reach people and connect with them through soup. But what Soup at Forward Day encourages is everybody to just make a bowl full of soup and deliver it to a friend, a neighbor, a stranger, anybody who you feel could use that that comfort in their day. And that's a lot of people right now. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, Sir John A. McDonald School and what you're going to be doing as far as the the choice. Why why was uh, this location chosen? Why is it important? You know what? This is a location that we have back pre-COVID made um, soup with. We would have like their their uh, leadership class come and make enough soup with us the day before they were going to deliver it to their entire school. And we started having that discussion with them again and realized there's just no way we can do it with COVID. But because that discussion started and because it means so much to us to be able to do this, we just went to plan B, and that was to put the product that we have getting made every single month on these trucks, heated up, warm, and ready to deliver. Wonderful organization, as you say, started in Calgary. It spread right across the country. You even got, have, have gotten powerhouse chef Anna Olson on board, so oh, she yeah. understands the importance of, of soup and of food in our world. We'll send folks to soupsisters.org. Great website for all the info you need. Everybody should have a bowl of soup today to, uh, to honor the occasion. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Sue. Sharon Hafton, Soup Sisters founder. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.